If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. Today is going to be a little bit uh, lengthy of a reading, and so if you're not able to stand, I, I want you to feel no pressure, no guilt, or shame whatsoever. So we're going to be in Daniel chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 8 and read through the end of the chapter in verse 30. This is one of the most fascinating stories. Megan and I were actually talking about this. I, I wonder how many of us have heard these stories from Daniel outside of Bible school and, and youth camp, Right? As adults, I don't know if I've ever heard these stories preached, but I think what you're going to see is the content is very adult applicable. Verse 8, therefore at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set it up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men, men who were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his council, did we not cast three men, men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, and the prefects, and the governors, and the king counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads were, was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. 
Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Let's pray to the Lord together. Heavenly Father, what a reminder that our faith is not ours to do with what we want. We stand on the shoulders of a tradition that is thousands of years old, of men and women who have sacrificed their bodies rather than forsake you. And so, Lord, in an age in which we are tempted to twist the scripture, to water down the message, to shrink back from the threats of the age, Let us stand in the faithfulness of our God that we will not be shaken, we will not turn back, we will not stop. Let us, with the winsomeness of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, be able to say back to Nebuchadnezzar, it is not for us to answer, but only for the Lord. Lord, I pray for the freedom of my people. I pray for the strength of my people. I pray for the freedom of my people. That, Lord, through the Spirit, through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, they would live with reckless abandon for your glory. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. On December the 1st, 1955, around 6 o'clock, after a full day's work, Ms. Rosa Parks boarded the Cleveland Avenue bus in Montgomery, Alabama. The first 10 rows of that bus were reserved for whites only, and so Rosa Parks sat on the 11th row in the section that was designated blacks for African Americans only. As the white section began to overflow, the bus driver came and approached Miss Parks and three others that were sitting with her and asked them to move further back in the bus because the, they needed to expand the whites-only section. After some hesitation, the first three complied and moved to the back, but Ms. Rosa Parks sat there resolutely. She says in her autobiography that in that moment, determination covered over her like a quilt on a winter night. As a result, she was taken to jail. She lost her job as a seamstress. But in light of those costs, she was able to help spark a movement that desegregated our country and that enabled us to make steps toward equality for all people. That her act of civil disobedience was an act of strength and defiance and freedom that advanced the cause. Well, what we see in our text, brothers and sisters, is an act of civil disobedience that took place 2,500 years prior to Ms. Parks. That what you have there in Daniel chapter 3 is you have a picture of the king of kings, the most powerful man on earth, Nebuchadnezzar, and he has erected a 90-foot golden statue of himself. The 
All of Babylon is filled with the imports of nations that have been conquered primarily with their youth. And they are seeking to strip them of their prior identity, causing them to forsake all of their gods. And among them are many of those that have been deported from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, better known by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the idea there now is that they would bow down to this statue every time the old marching band played to be able to say that now our allegiance is with Babylon. Now our allegiance is to Nebuchadnezzar. Now we recognize that the man who conquered us is the man that is worthy of our devotion. And in a crowd that would have been thronging with tens of thousands of children and teenagers, all of whom spoke various languages and had been uprooted from their homes, in a crowd of tens of thousands, they bowed down before this 90-foot statue out of nothing else perhaps other than self-preservation. But in that crowd, three young boys stood, refusing Refusing in an act of defiant civil disobedience to forsake the first two of the Ten Commandments. Declaring publicly without saying a word that their allegiance was to Yahweh and to Yahweh alone. What we see in Daniel chapter 3 is the aftermath of that stand. And what we see in Daniel chapter 3 I think is are three questions that... We have to answer in our lives if we hope to stand in the way that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood all those years ago. The first question that we have to ask is, who is God? Who is God? Fear is a word that is used as a synonym with worship in the Old Testament. That may seem strange to us, but it's less strange when you begin to understand the culture of the ancients. In their idea, in their understanding, you were meant to go and to discover which of the gods was the most fearsome, which of the gods was the mightiest. And your goal was to discover him, to win over his allegiance by whatever means possible, so then you became the safest nation, the mightiest nation, the most prosperous nation, the most unconquerable nation. Well, what we have in Daniel chapter 3 is Nebuchadnezzar asserting that he's that man. That he's that God. That he's not just a king. In fact, being the king of the mighty nation of Babylon, that now he is an eternal and immortal God before whom all should bow, out of whom can no God can deliver anyone. That he is making a declaration by asking these to, stand, to bow down, to recognize his sovereignty and his might. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will have none of it. And they have something to teach us. That if we're going to stand in our day, in a day which seems to pressure us from the outside to capitulate and to assimilate into the culture, if we're going to stand bravely and winsomely and courageously, that we have to understand the art of war. That we have to understand the art of war. That you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and their idea here is to see the contrast in chapter 3 from chapter 1. Do you remember chapter 1 from last week? How did Nebuchadnezzar try to win them over? He tried to win them over with the allure of Babylon, didn't he? He fed them from the king's table. He whined and he dined them. It's, it's kind of like when a drug dealer gives you the first hit so that now you'll come back and he'll be your lifetime dealer. That's the idea here. That he's trying to win them over by showing them the riches of Babylon and all the reasons that Babylon is more desirable. He's, he's appealing to their stomachs and their appetites. But in chapter 3, an escalation has taken place. 
Now he's not just saying, come and enjoy Babylon. Now he's saying, kiss the ring of Babylon. Bow down to Babylon. That now it started with allure, but now it is escalating to intimidation, compulsion, and force. Sun Tzu wrote the most famous book on military strategy in human history. It's called The Art of War. And ironically, Sun Tzu is actually a contemporary, though in a different region, in the region of China, of Daniel. He wrote this book 2,500 years ago, and it's still believed to be very relevant today. I have it on my shel- the shelf in my office. But what we see here is that military strategy far precedes Sun Tzu 2,500 years ago. What we're seeing unveiling in Daniel chapter 3 are the strategies of Satan that date all the way back to the garden. You see, the thought that Satan has is that first, first, he'll win you with allure. But secondly, he'll compel you with intimidation. Is that not what we see here? He says in verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve any of my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? He's dumbfounded that they would do this. And he seems to almost have a liking for them. He says, Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately immediately be cast into the fiery furnace. The word immediately, it means that right now is a decisive moment. It's a moment of truth. Right now, you are going to decide who is God and who isn't. Is God this figment of your imagination, this person that you've never seen, that's been handed down to you by the tradition of your parents, or is God the man before whom holds your life in his hands? Is God the one that you're looking on that decides right now whether you live or die? See, false gods and the men who follow them, they always appeal to your sense of desire and appetite first. But when that doesn't work, they'll demand your allegiance. And they will huff and they will puff and they will appeal, appear then to your sense of fear, allure, and then intimidation. You see, false gods, like weak men, have to compensate because they aren't strong. So they have to pretend to be strong. They can't threaten you. So they have to pretend to threaten you. And so they huff and they puff and they try to blow your house down. And you have to decide in that moment, who is God? Who is God? See, a moment of truth is coming in your life, probably more than one time, in which you will have to decide where your allegiances lie, who it is that you believe is most fearsome, who it is that you believe is actually most powerful in your life. And if Satan is not able to win you over with the allure and attractiveness of the temptation, you better be ready for the escalation, for false gods do not give up easily. You see, you want to be accepted, and so they will threaten you with isolation. You want to be promoted, so they will threaten you with a glass ceiling. You want to be successful and prosperous, but they will threaten you with failure and poverty. And what you have to answer, what you have to resolve is whether or not they are true or false. Whether or not they are real gods or not gods at all. So when it's all on the line, when the tension that you live in, the the dilemma that you face is either deny and disobey God or lose all the things that you've hoped and dreamed for. Where will your loyalties lie? Who will you believe is God? But it's not just that we have to understand the art of war. We have to beware of the coup d'etat of pride. 
See, to understand chapter 3, you really have to know the context of chapter 2. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and he won't tell anybody what the dream is. He tells all of his astrologers and all of his wise men, you have to just know what my dream is, and then you have to interpret it for me. And all of them are completely undone. You know why? They're false gods. They're worshiping false gods, and they're false prophets of these false gods, and they have no insight. But God miraculously tells Daniel the dream. And God doesn't just tell Daniel what the dream was. God tells Daniel how to understand the dream. And Daniel goes and he explains the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. That the dream shows him, Nebuchadnezzar, as being the king of kings among the earth. That there is no man that is mightier than him. There is no army that can conquer his army. But that it will only last for a little while. For the Lord says he is coming through the dream to establish an everlasting kingdom with an everlasting king before whom Nebuchadnezzar will bow and declare as the Lord. So do you know what we see in Daniel chapter 3? We see a response by Nebuchadnezzar to the prophecy of God in chapter 2. He is being defiant. What we are seeing in Daniel chapter 3 is a resurrection of the Tower of Babel. An attempt by man to get to on evil, even playing field, with God. To prove that they should, are worthy of being exalted. And that they are actually in control. That what Nebuchadnezzar is attempting here is a coup. He's attempting to dethrone God and to place himself on the throne. He's, 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 he's trying to convince them that he's the one that's in control. And he's the one that will determine the future. And he's the one out of whose hand no one can deliver him. This is what he says. He says it with great hubris there at the last sentence of verse 15. He says, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hand? Who is the God? What is he saying? He's saying every other God, including yours, is subordinate to me. And Nebuchadnezzar has good facts to back up his reasoning, doesn't he? He's successful. He has conquered them. And in his operating system, his framework, that meant that he was mightier. That meant that he was stronger. And so he's looking at them and he's saying, are you really going to side with a conquered God over me, your conqueror? Do you not see what I can do for you? Do you not see what I can give to you? See, it's a coup. He's saying, I'm in control. And what was his response? It says there in verse 13 that he was in a furious rage. Does that bring into your mind at all, if you're a Bible scholar perhaps, Psalm chapter 2? What is Psalm chapter 2? It says that the nations rage. Why did the nations rage? The nations rage for the same reason that Nebuchadnezzar rages. The, na the nations rage for the same reason that you rage. It's because you want to believe that you're on the throne. You want to believe that you're in control. You see, we should read this story much slower than we typically do. When we read this story, we want to believe that it's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and their brave, bold faith with whom we most identify. But I'll tell you from my life, the character in this story with whom I most identify is Nebuchadnezzar and all of his pride. That what I see in my life is a desire to dethrone God and to exalt myself, to assert my ways, to assert my will, to say and to build my tower and by my strength and by my ingenuity so that everybody will look and say, what a great man he is. And that's why, that's why I have a temper. That's why uh, we're tempted to fly off the handle with our wives or with our children or with our employees. That's why we're harsh with our friends. 
Because when you have someone like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that stands up and disproves your control, disproves your deification of yourself and your enthronement of yourself, it is a reminder that you're really not in control, but you have to be in control. And so you fly off the handle in an attempt to bring everything quickly under your control. Oh, the nations rage, and the nations rage because they don't know God, and the nations rage because they aren't God, and Nebuchadnezzar rages because he isn't God, and you rage because you're not God. Who will you believe is God and in control of your life? Will you insist on being on the throne, or will you recognize the Lord high and lifted up? This determines your ability to stand. This determines your ability to live as a person of peace or of conflict. Who is God? And where is freedom? That's the second question that will determine your ability to stand. Where is freedom? When we think about a story like Rosa Parks' story, it's an interesting question to think about who in that story is actually free. We see Ms. Parks, and she's clearly in the role of the oppressed, isn't she? She's the one that has her freedom taken away, it seems. She goes to jail. She's the one that loses her livelihood. And so it seems, it seems... As though the, the, the people who are behind her imprisonment, the, the government that is behind, it seems like they're the ones that are free. But I would propose to you that freedom, freedom is when you are able and willing to live out your convictions regardless of what consequences are threatened at you. That freedom is actually the ability to not flinch when someone tries to strong arm you into capitulation and assimilation, but where you say, look. Put me in prison, I'll be free there. Take away my life, I'll go to be with the Lord, I'll be free there. That regardless of what you do, I will remain as a free person because my soul and my heart will bow to no man or woman. You see, we see something similar with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, don't we? I don't know Ms. Parks well enough to know what the source of her strength really was, but the Bible is clear on what the source of the freedom that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had. That the security of their freedom, their ability, even though they're in exile, even though they're in a foreign land, even though they've been captured, to live as free men is founded upon three pillars that can enable our freedom today. Even as we live in an age that threatens to take away our jobs and take away our voice and take away our influence and, and convince us that we're on the wrong side of history, that we can stand on these same three principles. That God's power is great. Because power is great. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this. I love that. That is awesome. Do you hear that? Here is the mightiest man in all the world. Here is the man that has so much hubris that he has erected a 90-foot statue to himself. He is surrounded here. We already know who's in the room. It's all the mighty men. He is surrounded by Navy SEALs and, and Army Rangers and all of his infantrymen. He is surrounded by, by the splendor of his gold. And here are these three little boys, maybe teenagers, best case scenario. And he says, who is God? And what do they say? No comment. We think God will show you who he is just fine. We'll let God do the talking for us. Is that not bold? Verse 17. If this be so. In other words, if you throw us into the furnace, furnace, here's what we believe. Our God, whom we serve. They're, they're saying again directly, we will not bow to you. We serve God and God alone. We bow to God and to God alone. Our God, whom we serve, 
is able, is able to deliver us. In other words, what are they saying? Nebuchadnezzar, you can huff and puff all you want to. You can rant and rave all you want to. You can have as many soldiers as you want to have. You can have as many war chests as you want to have. You can have as many chariots as you want to have. You can beat your chest. You can beat your drum. You can sound off your marching band every chance you get, but you are not in control. And we know that because we know who's in control. We know who's in control. We know that what you are showing us is nothing more than a bluff because we know the one who sits on the throne before whom every feet, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. We know that our God is mightier than you. We know that your victories in battle will not stack up. We know that all of your accomplishments will not stack up. We know that all of your wealth will ultimately be redeemed worthless. That moth and rust will destroy. You're not in control. God is in control. And so we can stand this day because God is able. But not just that God's power was great that enabled them to stand. It was that they recognized that God's character is good. That God's character is good. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will. You see that? And he will deliver us. What are they saying there? They're saying that based on our experiences with God, based on our knowledge of God, based on the history of our nation with God, we know one thing, that it's most likely scenario that God has created this scenario just for the purpose of our deliverance. That we believe not just that God is able to overcome you, we believe that God wants to do it. We believe and are convinced that God's character is so proven through the ages and in our lives and by our experiences that God will overcome our tragedy in this moment, our travails in this moment. Now, do you see where the security of their hope is found? The security of their hope is not found in the quality of their faith. It's important that you get that from the story. This story is not about, whoa, how amazing is the fate of these three dudes. The security of their faith is not found in the quality of their faith. The security, the security of their hope is found in the quality of the object of their faith. That this is not a story about how amazing the faith is of these three dudes. This is a story about how amazing the faithfulness of God always is. When you're afraid, when you're threatened... When people are coming after you, when it seems like your whole world is collapsing around you when, you, when you feel anxious, when you feel angry, when you're tempted to rage and try to reassert control in your life, where does your mind drift to find comfort and hope? Does your mind drift to the quality of your faith? Does it go to all of your misquiet times? Does it go to all the days that you skip over without reading your Bible? Does it go to all of the prayerlessness in your life? Does it go to the lies that you've told? Does it go to the dishonesty in your business? Does it go to the harshness with your kids and your wife or your husband? Does it go to all of the, does it, does it seek to look out for you, the quality of your faith, so that in some way it can feel better about itself? Because I bet, I bet that if your hope is dependent upon the quality of your faith as you go through the Rolodex of your faithfulness, what you'll find is overwhelmingly faithlessness, and you'll fall into even deeper despair. Your anxiety will turn up all the more. You will become an angrier person. But what if instead, what if instead, rather than rolling through the Rolodex of your faithlessness, you could go to the quality of the object of your faith. 
What if instead of thinking of all of your unfaithfulness, you could go through and you could remember that Jesus' character is proven where yours has not been? What if you could go through and think about how he was always gentle, how he was always kind? What if you could go through and think about how he received every person that came? What if you would go through and think about all the times he was antagonized but never overreacted? What if you could go through all the times where he was suppressed but never rose up? What if you could go to the time in which he was mounted on the cross and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And you looked at his character and then you remembered. Then you remember. This is not about what I am able to do. This is about what he has already done. Do you feel the freedom? Do you feel the freedom? This is not about how faithful you are. This is not about how much faith and courage you can muster. This is about how deeply rooted the faithfulness of Jesus is taken in your heart. God's power is great. God's character is good. And the third pillar, and this is a landing point for them, God's plan is trustworthy. God's plan is trustworthy. Verse 18 is one of the single most powerful and potent verses in all the Bible. I truly believe that. He says, they say together, but if not, we believe that God is able to deliver us. We believe that God is mightier than you. We don't think you're in control. We think he's in control. We believe that God is a better man than you and a better man than us. That his character is proven. We believe that based on our knowledge of him, that he will deliver us. But if not, if not, if he doesn't deliver us, if he allows us to die in the fiery furnace, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. If it costs us our life, we're going down with the ship. Do you see what they're saying? They're saying, we think after our experience with God, knowing the scriptures as we do, having walked with God as we have, we believe that we understand what he's going to do here. We, we, we think that it fits within his pattern to deliver us. But we also recognize that there is mystery to the providential will of God. We also recognize that his ways are not our ways. And what we're telling you, Nebuchadnezzar, is that we will not flinch because even if his ways are not our ways and we are not delivered and our circumstances are not improved, that we always have decided to prefer his ways. That his ways are proven to be better than our ways. And so his plan for us is trustworthy. Whether we live or die, we are okay to accept and to know that in some way he's going to bring this back for his good for our good, for his glory, and for the exaltation of his name. Do you feel the freedom of that? Do you feel that? That if you can get to the place where you can say, I'm not in control, God is in control. I'm not in charge, God is in charge. I'm not faithful enough to figure all this out. If I get what I deserve, I'm getting the fiery furnace every time, man. But God's character is good. And I'm getting what Jesus has deserved because my faith is in him. And so even though all of my life may not be what I want, what I can know, I can know that God's plan is trustworthy. And so right now, if I'm single and I don't want to be single, I can trust the trustworthy of God. If if right now I'm sick and I don't want to be sick, I can trust the trustworthiness of the plan of God. Right now, if I'm divorced and I don't want to be divorced, I can trust the trustworthiness of the plan of God because Jesus has 
come. And Jesus has proven to us by the resurrection from the dead that God's plan is true. God's plan is coming. And Jesus has said, I have secured the future for you. I am preparing a place for you. I'm coming back for you. Your body will be made well. Your soul will be made well. Your tears will be wiped away. You are going to be okay. My plan is going to be good. So you can trust it. Brothers and sisters, this is what we struggle with, isn't it? This is what we struggle with. We worry about our kids. Will they rebel? We worry about our health. Will we get sick? We worry about our future. Will we have enough? We worry about our job. Will we lose it? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are beckoning us to not live in the bondage of the threats and the bluffs of our age, but instead to look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has proven to us that even though today we may be faced with the furnace, that one day we will walk on the clouds. Oh, brothers and sisters, live in freedom. Live in freedom. One final question that they help us to answer so that we can stand is what is strength? What is strength? We think about strength and we think about those who are strong. We think about the conquerors of the old, don't we? We think about men like Nebuchadnezzar. We think about Napoleon. We think about Caesar. And so it's an interesting question when you come to the story of Ms. Parks of who was actually strong in that story. Was it the establishment? Was it the big people that threw her? Was it all that? Or was it? The person who was able to say, here I stand, I can do no other. And in this story, I think we're supposed to ask a question like that. Who is strong? Is it the king with all of his pomp and circumstance? Is it the mighty nation on earth that is looking down on these three pesky little kids that won't bow down and do what they're told? Who's strong? Well, What's interesting is the men that Nebuchadnezzar sends to go and to throw them in the fiery furnace. He goes into a fit of rage. And it says that he ordered some of the mighty men of his armies to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, you remember David's mighty men? That tells you who these people are, right? It tells you who these people are. That the mighty men, these are the baddest dudes on the planet. David was one of Saul's mighty men. And then he gets these mighty men. And they're taking down like, like lions in a... In a pit on a snowy day, like all that stuff, right? Like, like they're slaying tens of thousands of men by themselves. These are bad dudes. This is still Team Six. This is these are the Army Rangers. This is the the Airborne Division coming in, right? But listen to what it says, because I want you to see that your feats are futile. That men and women, we like to brag about our feats, the things that we've accomplished, don't we? It may be intellectual. It may be professional. Maybe physical, it may be familial, it may be the kids that you raise or the house that you. Th- these are men, these are men who had accomplished great feats in their lives. You understand that? These are men that had won Babylon all of its glory. These are men that had marched Israel and Judah into Babylon after their defeat. These are the men that were seen to be in conquer. These were the men that were pr- these were the men that were proven on the battlefield. The strongest dudes. But listen to what it says. To bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, the fire, burning fiery furnace. Verse 21. These men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments. And they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire 
killed those men who took up. Who are those men? It's, Shad, it's the mighty men that were taken, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These were the strongest dudes on earth. These are the Navy SEALs. These are the Army Rangers. You see, it comes up eventually that you discover you can't muscle your way through fire. doesn't matter how strong you are. You can't muscle your way through fire. See, death has its effect on these men that it will have on every man and on every woman. That death will ultimately prove the strongest to be weak. Death at the end of your life when the fires are raging will ultimately show you that all of your feats ultimately will be lost to the annals of history and are largely inconsequential for anything a day beyond the life of your reign. Who cares the promotions you got? Who cares about your professional feats? Who cares about your physical feats? Who cares about your intellectual prowess? None of those things will matter. The only thing that will matter when the fires come and approach you and the death begins to knock on your door is not are your feats. You will experience the futility of your feats, but that you trusted Jesus' feats are forever. That Jesus' feats are forever. The way that the furnace would have been constructed is it would have been built into the side of a bank quite lightly, and there would have been a, a, a big uh, opening at the top, and you would have thrown them in like a pit, but there would have been an opening at the bottom so that people could watch on and so that you could potentially throw fuel onto the fire. So you have the picture here, you have these three little boys bound up by the mighty men of Babylon, and, they, and, and the men of Babylon die, and so the, the little boys actually just kind of tumble over and into the pit, and there's King Nebuchadnezzar, likely still in his rage, aggravated and angry that these men would defy him as they did, and he's watching there in the front window of the furnace. And it says that he was astonished, that he rose up in haste. He jumped up to his feet because what he saw, he could not believe. His men, the mighty men of Babylon, had died at the opening of the furnace. But he looks in, and he doesn't see three men in there. He sees four men, and they're walking around, and they're unarmed. And he calls out, and he says, I thought we threw three in there. He says, but I see a fourth. I see a fourth, and the fourth is like a son of the gods. A sons of Elohim is the Hebrew word. It's a word that, that is layered with double meaning to say it looks to him like it's just the son of a god. But the Hebrew people would have recognized that this is the son of the god. What was the difference between the mighty men whose Feats were proven futile, and the three boys who were able to walk through the fire without even having the smell of smoke on their clothes, those three boys were not alone. They were not alone. The triune God was there in the furnace with them. In fact, in fact, I am convinced that what we see in Daniel chapter 3 is a pre-incarnate Christophany. It's a, a pre-life of Jesus, appearance of Jesus, showing us the eternality of the second person of the Godhead. And what is Jesus doing in Daniel chapter 3? Jesus is doing what Jesus always does. He's joining his people in the fire. He's joining his people in the rubble. He's joining his people in the brokenness. He's joining his people in their consequences. Because what will Jesus do? Jesus is going to be born 500 years after this. He's going to be born, and he's going to be born into poverty. He's going to suffer in every way that you and I have suffered. 
He's going to be tempted in every way that you and I have been tempted. He's going to walk through all the fires of this world that you and I face day in and day out. Except he will not end in glory. Originally he will go to the cross. And on the cross what will he experience? The fire of God's wrath will fall down upon him. And he will absorb in totality all of that fire on my behalf and on your behalf. And he will be raised on the second day to ascend to the right hand of the Father. So that all of us who trust not in what we can accomplish but in what he has done can walk through the fire with him and come out on the other side without even having the smell of smoke on our clothes. Oh death where is your sting? Oh death where is your victory? You see church family you can stand in the midst of the fire so long as you stand there with the Lord Jesus himself. You can walk through the rubble and come to the other side Not because you are strong, but because he is strong and he is with you. Oh, let this nation rage. Let this age huff and puff against us. Iron City Baptist Church, we will not bow and we will not stand. We will not stop standing because we stand with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, church, there is your freedom. Can we pray to the Lord together? Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.